The Adler Planetarium presents The Aquarius Project. Chapter 4. These are just, like, parts from Home Depot. Take a look at your phone. Or, if it's not in reach, picture it in your mind. Uh, so, my name is Chris Helms. I'm the collections manager here at the Adler Planetarium. Is it new? Old? Fancy? Cheap? Uh, the Adler has one of the world's largest and best collections of historic astronomical instruments. How's the screen? Is it cracked? Pristine? Covered in scratches? We have about 3,000 three-dimensional objects, and my job is to make sure that they are cared for. Your phone is a tool. You can use it to take photos, make plans, send taco emojis to your loved ones, and listen to podcasts. We at The Other are collecting the ephemera, the pieces, the tools that people use to observe the universe. If I looked closely at your phone, I'd probably find some clues about what you use it for and how you use it. And those clues would also give me a little insight into who you are. Every sticker, scratch, crack, app, and case, or lack thereof, tells a story. The 17th century astronomer Galileo Galilei didn't have a phone, but he did have telescopes. Telescopes he made. Galileo had never even seen a telescope before he started building them. He'd basically heard a rumor about a brand new tool that would make distant objects look closer and thought, I bet I can make one of those. At first, he bought lenses off the shelf from his local eyeglass purveyors. But the more he tinkered, the more he realized those lenses weren't shaped quite right for what he wanted to do. That is, see things that were very far away. So he learned to grind his own. When his telescopes got powerful enough, he pointed them at the sky and saw things nobody had ever seen before, like the rings of Saturn and the rugged surface of the moon. Being able to physically see history provides kind of a, a, a material reality to what you're talking about. It's one thing to talk about Galileo looked up at the sky and, and saw some stars and jotted that down. Okay, that's cool. That, that's great. And that's a great story. But it's a whole nother thing to see. Here's Galileo's telescope that he looked through and looked at the sky and saw, you know, Cirrus the star or track the phases of the moon. There's a gravitas to that. There are two gorgeous replicas of Galileo's handmade telescopes on display at the Adler. One in the telescope's exhibit, and one down the hall in What is a Planet? I spent some time admiring them recently on a cold Monday morning. They're similar to each other. Long, thin tubes with soft-looking leather exteriors and shiny, swirly gold-leaf accents. I could see what Chris was saying. These were serious, carefully crafted scientific instruments. I saw something else too. Underneath all that fine leather and gold leaf, Galileo's telescopes were simple. Each one is essentially just a tube with a couple pieces of glass in it. But when Galileo made it, it was the best one in the world. 
a step toward the next one, which would be better still. There's a direct line from those telescopes to the James Webb Space Telescope, the super high-tech one NASA's working on. On that same line, you'll find the Hubble Space Telescope, which is the one that took all your favorite glamour shots of Saturn, and the telescope in the Doan Observatory behind the Adler, where anyone can put their own eye up to the eyepiece and see things that would have taken Galileo's breath away. The Adler's collection is growing all the time. And someday, in amongst the delicate old picture books and miniature cannons designed to fire when the sun is directly overhead, visitors might find a ramshackle heap of PVC pipe, duct tape, and upcycled metal sheets. That heap was the first step on a journey to the bottom of a deep, dark lake, where an unlikely band of explorers hunted for meteorite fragments with a homemade sled. Yeah, Aquarius Project sled, uh, we would love to have that in our collection. I think eventually, the, the prototype at least, would be something we very much want in the collection, yeah. It's a big deal when a homemade object ends up in a world-famous astronomy collection. But in this case, it makes sense. Galileo was once the world's foremost telescope maker, and when the high school kids who constructed the sled prototype made it, they were the world's foremost magnetic underwater meteorite retrieval sled makers. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Nobody else was doing it. I'm so glad this is here. Yeah. So this has been... Uh, this, is, this was Frankenstein. As it was being made, it was Frankenstein. And, you know, as every iteration was happening, there was change. In my imagination, Galileo's workshop was all fancy dark wood and old-school academic prestige. But I've been in enough real workshops to know it probably didn't look that way in real life. Real workshops, like the project space at the Adler, usually look a lot more like someone's garage. Less order, more joy. Let's see how things go together. That's Chris Bresky. If you're a longtime listener of The Aquarius Project, Chris Bresky needs no introduction. If you're just joining us for the first time, I highly recommend listening to the first three episodes before you go any further. But the short version is, Chris is the guy in charge of the Aquarius Project, which is an unprecedented underwater meteorite search and rescue mission based at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. I'm just trying to put together uh, the, what the, like the skeletal remains. These are just like parts from Home Depot. Chris had just pulled the oldest incarnation of the sled out from a neglected corner of the project space, and it wasn't in great shape. A few pieces were missing, probably because people had taken them to use in other projects. And the construction is a bit haphazard, because it was built by people who are still learning how to build. Uh, at the very beginning, we didn't have all the PVC we needed. We were just like scrapping this together and no budget. So you see there are several PVCs that were not long enough, so different couplings were put together, or duct tape was used to make them long enough. Um, you can tell it's made of parts that used to be other things, like the meshy metal sheet on the bottom that came from the kitchen in the museum cafe. It's fun. You can actually see sort of the design process, too, and also these uh, students learning while designing. Um, the prototype sled was actually pretty ingenious. It was designed to be attached to a boat, dropped in the water, and dragged across the meteor crash site where it could pick up meteorites more reliably and efficiently than a human diver. They also knew it wasn't going to last forever. Mostly they were using it to test configurations of magnets, trying to find a way to pick up lots of magnetic rocks like meteorites 
just by dragging the sled over them. One of the students who started testing magnet arrangements on this prototype was Daniel Glazer. I'm Daniel Glazer. I'm 19, and I currently go to Carnegie Mellon University to study physics. Before he went off to college, Daniel spent a summer volunteering for Far Horizons, the Adler's high-altitude ballooning program, which also uses the project space to build stuff. Every time he came in, he'd find Chris and the Aquarius Project kids tinkering with pipes and connectors and duct tape and magnets. And then I'd see a bunch of people my age working on, you know, this PVC thing next to me. And so I kind of just like inched my way over to them eventually. And I just asked enough questions and then eventually asked if I could just join the team. That PVC thing, the one you might see in a glass case at the Adler someday, was basically just a frame at this point. And then there was like a shop magnet, which is just a big iron, rectangle iron magnet, I think duct taped to the bottom of it, and like a place for a, for a, a GoPro. That was the entire slide. With help from Jenica Greer, a graduate student studying meteorites over at the Field Museum, a few of the teens mixed up a batch of fake meteorites designed to be just about as magnetic as real ones. Whenever they reconfigured the magnets on the sled, they'd cart the fakes out to the beach, drop them in the water, and try to pick them up with the sled. It was a lot of trial and error. I think the first iteration we thought of was to just make like a box to hold the magnets in. The box, more of a bar really, a long rectangular magnet holder, wasn't working very well. The magnets in it were just too weak. So they ordered some very strong neodymium magnets on the internet. But the bigger, stronger magnets came with their own set of problems. For one thing, they were hard to work with. If they get too close to each other, magnets like these have a tendency to slam together at incredible speeds. Yeah, I cut myself a few times. I think I like, bruised myself a few times. We, we, we would name the successively bigger magnets that we got, like different names. There was like Finger Snapper. There was like, there was Bone Crusher. Uh, oh, one of them was just called Toy which was the biggest one, but we called it a toy because it was labeled like that uh, through like customs. It was some magnet from China. You know, a one and a half pound neodymium magnet that's like really dangerous. We're like, oh, what a nice toy. Another problem. The new magnets worked too well. They picked up everything magnetic in the sled's path, like iron filings and regular boring old earth rocks. After a short pull of the sled, every inch of the magnets would be completely covered so by the time the sled reached the next fake meteorite, there was nowhere for it to stick. We had no good way of, like, once it caught onto a meteorite, putting it anywhere. Like, there, there was not a good way to clean off the bar. They needed a way to keep a fresh magnet in contact with the ground, while also clearing off any magnet that was too crowded to pick up anything else. They had a bunch of ideas. And the one that stuck was brilliantly simple. A wheel that Daniel designed and 3D printed in the Far Horizons lab. There's the wheel that brushed the bottom of the, of the ocean or of the, of the lake. It could pick up a meteorite, but then spin up to some basket to dump the meteorite off into a, a bin, and then keep going. And by the end, that's what was working the best. When Galileo started making telescopes, he was a mathematician. He didn't know how to grind lenses. But the only thing standing between him and the most powerful telescopes in the world at the time was learning how, so he did. And that's pretty much exactly what Daniel did. He imagined a solution to a problem and learned a new skill to make it real. It wasn't like they took me on thinking like, all right, this is gonna be a guy who we're gonna teach how to 3D model and 3D print. It was more like, 
whatever you're going to need to know to do what you want to do, we'll just make sure you know. Once you realize that Galileo was just a guy in a workshop trying to solve a problem, it's easier to see the tools you use every day as historical objects of the future. And your imagination, your particular experiences and skills, as potentially transformative. While Chris, Daniel, and the rest of the team were devising tests and tasks for their little proto-sled in their workshop, another guy in a workshop down the street at Shedd Aquarium was about to make his own contribution to the project. His workshop is under the aquarium, down a few dark hallways, past the massive tanks that filter the water where the sharks swim. My name is Dan Yoshimura. Most people call him Yoshi. I am a facilities life support operator at the Shedd Aquarium. If you need somebody who's good with tools, it's hard to do better than Yoshi. He does a lot of tinkering underwater. Not just on things meant to be used underwater, I mean he goes underwater and does the tinkering there. He got a diving certification just because it made his job easier and made friends with a shark just because. Did I make friends with a shark? Um, I did make friends with one shark who decided to lay on top of me. The metal shelves in Yoshi's subterranean workshop stretch way up toward the ceiling. They are packed with rows of color-coded plastic drawers full of bolts and wires, staging lights, safety masks, and raw building materials. Back in the spring of 2017, Phil Willink, a marine biologist who worked at the shed at the time, needed Yoshi's help. Not with the sharks, with a meteor. Basically, Dr. Phil was involved. He was the point person at the shed. It came up that we need to build a sled. Phil had seen the news about the meteor that crashed into Lake Michigan in February of that year. When Chris Bresky showed up at his door looking for information about Lake Michigan and how a team of plucky amateurs might fish a meteorite out of it, Phil and a colleague had already been talking about the crash. Phil told Chris they thought it might be possible to grab a few meteorites with a magnetic sled. That's when Chris brought the idea back to the Adler. And Phil brought it to Yoshi. I did a small amount of research on the internet to see what do underwater sleds look like? And everything I pulled up, you're looking at multi-million dollar projects, stainless steel welding, all sorts of wonderful cameras and cables, and well, then you have the big question. What type of budget do we have? He said, well, <laughs> there really isn't one. If the Aquarius project had had a few million dollars to spare, Yoshi could have built one of those fancy stainless steel sleds with all the wonderful cameras and cables. Way before he learned to dive, before he was tightening the bolts in the shark tank, or building new toys for the otters, Yoshi was an artist. I was trained as a sculptor in traditional methods, bronze casting, stone carving. And he used those skills, that ability to create pieces that were both beautiful and sturdy, to work his way through graduate school. Though the tools he used were different. It was mostly one tool, actually, a knife. In a Japanese restaurant, where he worked in the kitchen and learned to make sushi. In undergrad, I was the tech assistant, so I taught people how to use a table saw, how to weld, how to braise, how to do the, the foundry work when you did foundry work. So I was like, okay, a knife is a knife, and a knife is a tool. Yoshi finds tools everywhere. 
If he notices colleagues discarding potentially useful items, like scraps of wood or metal, or pipes left over from other projects around the building, he'll salvage them on their way out the door and stash them in his workshop for a rainy day. And at one point they were discarding some cutting boards from our kitchen. It's hard to say which of Yoshi's inner voices, the artist, the engineer, or the sushi chef, saw the potential in those cutting boards. Didn't know what I was going to use them for when I retrieved them. But the instinct paid off. He used four massive slabs of cutting board and some PVC pipe to form the body of what would become the world's first, no-budget, underwater, meteorite retrieval sled. The sled looks a lot different now. Yoshi got to see it at a project summit at the shed last spring. Just looking at all the guts inside the skeleton, it was like, it's alive. If you look closely, you can still see knife marks all over the repurposed cutting boards. And the rest of the sled is outfitted with DIY versions of all the wonderful things Yoshi saw in those multi-million dollar projects on the internet. Cables and camera mounts, sensors and spinning wheels. Yoshi had built the PVC and cutting board skeleton of the sled while Daniel and the other kids at the Adler were testing magnets, camera placements, and other ideas on their prototype. So by the time he handed it over, they were ready to start attaching stuff. Some of those kids, like Daniel, graduated and left for college at the end of the summer, and a new batch of meteorite hunters arrived in the fall. The people we met in episode three, Carmen, Jared, and Jack, were in the new cohort. And so was Giovanna. I just want to say, and I always say this, it's super impressive how like, well-made this is. Giovanna made the tube that held the RGB light sensors we talked about in episode three, and the 3D-printed housing that kept the sensors dry. Credit for sensor housing again goes to Carmen here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was Jack giving credit where it's due and Carmen accepting it graciously. Jack helped program the sensors that went in that tube and also spent many frustrating afternoons sorting through and assembling the pieces of a surprisingly complicated robotic rover. When I talked to Carmen, Giovanna, and Jack back in the project space, the sled was resting sideways on a wheeled cart made just for it. I think it's working pretty well, actually. I didn't know it was going to work that well. I thought it was, like, in all honesty, I was like, I don't know how this is going to work. Daniel's magnet wheels look great, three of them right across the middle. There's also a plastic bin meant to collect any rocks that spin off the backs of the wheels, some long skinny brushes, a spoiler, which is a thing that keeps the nose of the sled from flying upward as it's dragged. Carmen designed that too. And a few rolling wire cages, originally invented to collect the nuts that had fallen from trees. The hilariously named Nut Wizards. <laughs> they're, the, they're the funniest, they're the funniest thing. Yeah, but Nut Wizards are used for your lawn if you have a maple tree with a lot of acorns or a walnut tree or whatever other trees have nuts that go in the ground. And this is a wizard and it picks them up. Hence the name, Nut Wizard. <laughs> this sled is miles ahead of the one Daniel first tested those magnets on, but it does retain a bit of the prototype spirit. A bunch of mismatched gizmos, and the sense that each one is subject to change at a moment's notice. Designing stuff for science is not a precise science. It is just, it is just throw things together and hope for the best, see what sticks, and go from there. When you see this version of the sled, you might wonder why an object historian like Chris Helms, the collections manager, specifically called out the old crumbling prototype as the item he had his eye on. 
It's for the same reason we keep Galileo's simple telescopes, even though we have far more powerful ones today. Every great idea has the same humble origins in our imaginations. The mistakes we make, the obstacles we overcome trying to make those ideas real, the scratches and dents and missing pieces make them beautiful. Every object is just a single page in the big book of human knowledge. And at a space museum, that book stretches from the present all the way back to the beginning of time. Here's Chris Helms again. The thing that we say to pretty much anybody who comes in for a tour is the oldest thing we have in our collection is an astrolabe from 1130, which is clearly false because we have 85 meteorites that are billions of years old, right? Oh yeah, meteorites. We got so carried away talking about the sled that we almost forgot what all this hard work is for. Meteorites are history. They're the history of the universe. Chris Bresky and Yoshi and our intrepid students all have their sights set on the meteorites strewn for miles across the bottom of Lake Michigan. And if they manage to catch any, even just one or two, those precious old rocks could join the 85 others in the Adler's collection, most of which came from a single source, Harvey Harlow Nininger. So we have about, we actually have uh, about 85 meteorites in our collection. There's a guy named Nininger who is basically considered to be the father of modern meteorite studies. When you picture the father of meteorite studies, who do you see? I will confess to you that if you had asked me this question before I talked to Chris Helms for this podcast, I would have pictured an astronomer like the Adler's own Mark Hammergren, who tracks the movements of asteroids and meteors. Or Mark Fries, the curator of NASA's Cosmic Dust Collection. You may remember meeting both of them back in episode two. But there is something about the way Chris said a guy named Nininger, and something about the way the Aquarius Project has unfolded so far that made me wonder. So I asked Chris, this guy, Nininger, the father of meteorite studies, was he even a scientist? He was not, no. He was not originally a scientist by training. He just went out to his neighborhood and found some meteorites that had fallen and then just started collecting them and classifying them. And nobody had thought to do that before. Maybe it's the novelty of a rock from space that makes him pick up that first meteorite. Then another, then another. He looks at the colors and shapes, feels the different textures and weights and starts to notice patterns. Nininger also kind of started uh, the study of meteorites on a scientific level as well. So not just classifying them, but really understanding what they're made of and where they come from. And so we really view the Aquarius Project and anything that comes from the Aquarius Project in terms of meteorites as really just an extension of that. Harvey Nininger was not trained as a scientist, but he became one when he learned to read the stories locked up in those rocks. People like Galileo, like Yoshi, like Chris Bresky and Daniel and Carmen and Jack and Giovanna, they saw the potential in ordinary objects to be part of something extraordinary. A couple pieces of glass that could reveal the stars and planets to you, or a cutting board that might help capture a piece of the asteroid belt right here on Earth. One of the most amazing objects in the Adler's collection is a NASA technical manual from the 1960s with the cover torn off. It was a troubleshooting guide for the crew of Apollo 13. Yeah, that Apollo 13, the one where they were on their way to the moon and everyone almost died after an oxygen tank exploded. 
But the troubleshooting guy didn't say what to do if an oxygen tank exploded, so they tore the cover off and turned it into a piece of an improvised air filter that ended up saving everyone's life. You can see that unassuming, beat-up old book for yourself. It's on display in a glass case in the museum, one floor up from those replicas of Galileo's telescopes. My favorite thing about that mangled book, aside from how it's a testament to human ingenuity and of course the incredible irony of a technical manual that can't solve your problem but then in this totally backwards way does end up solving your problem, it's this. NASA estimated that it took 400,000 experts, scientists, mathematicians, technicians, engineers, highly trained people, to get the Apollo 11 astronauts to the moon. Every single person on that team spent years building and testing equipment and trying to anticipate every problem that might come up. How to keep three people alive in the cold, unforgiving vacuum of space, spacecraft maintenance, troubleshooting, how to navigate and steer and make the trip as short as possible, how to land on another world and get off of it in one piece. But when that oxygen tank exploded, Two missions later, nobody knew what to do. No one had anticipated this. There was nothing to fall back on, except what got the Apollo missions off the ground in the first place. People willing to work together, be creative, use whatever tools were available to attempt something spectacularly difficult and knowing full well that it might not work. And that's exactly what we're going to do next time on The Aquarius Project. The Aquarius Project is a production of the Adler Planetarium with music by Audio Network and Jim and the Povolos. It was written by me, Aubrey Henready, and produced by Aaron Cahoe. Our logo was designed by Arula Fetro. Special thanks to Chris Helms, Chris Bresky, Dan Yoshi Yoshimura, Daniel Glazer, Carmen Jones, Giovanna Rossi, Jack Morgan, Meredith Stepien, Mark Swiderski, Nick Gage, Lindsay Smith, Jamie Burns, and Nick Cabot. Also, a huge thanks and double high fives to our friends Ashley Hamer and Cody Goff over at the Curiosity Daily Podcast, who interviewed Chris Bresky and me about the Aquarius Project and this podcast for their December 6th episode. Their show covers a huge range of science and technology topics, and we had a lot of fun talking to them. Follow the Adler Planetarium on Twitter and Instagram at Adler Planet or on Facebook at Adler Planetarium. Visit our website at adlerplanetarium.org. What are your feels? We got it. You think we got it? Yeah. Nothing has to be done again? Yeah.